So like I said, my name is Matt Cassidy. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. And, you know, I don't know about anybody else, but, you know, when I got to speak, you know, it's like today's Wednesday. I start planning Wednesday's talk somewhere around Sunday, you know, maybe begin an early start, you know, do it Saturday. So, you know, and then it all goes out the window, you know, when the, uh, when they say meeting begins, because, you know, it's like, it's supposed to be God speaking, not, you know, not my pre-planned talk, but, uh, I do get the, uh, the, the grapevine daily quote. And the other day, uh, the grapevine daily quote, I was just like, you know, it, it was so cool to me that I did want to share it, you know, while I talk and kind of like make it the topic of, you know, what I was going to speak about. So, you know, this is from uh, July 17th, grapevine daily quote. It's from Bill Wilson from an article from September 1957. It says, though my sobriety had come easy, the growing up business hadn't. Both emotional and spiritual growth have always been mighty difficult for me. And that kind of sums up exactly, you know, uh, you know what I'm going to share about. I'm going to share, you know, uh, like like how it works says. I'm going to share in a general way what I used to be like as an active alcoholic, what happened, you know, the 12 steps of recovery in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and what I'm like now as a result of that guaranteed spiritual awakening that happened as a result of these steps. And, you know, to be transparent, I'll probably even talking about, you know, all the areas that I fall short, which keep my 10th and 11th step, you know, interesting. But uh, you know, the other thing I wanted to talk about, you know, I do chair a, a detox meeting every other Sunday, you know, in my area. And it's just, it, 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 it always amazes me, you know, the, the misconception that, every, that a lot of people who call themselves an alcoholic have about this disease of alcoholism, you know, and it's one that I had when I first showed up too, you know, was the belief that when I put alcohol in my body, that's when the trouble begins, you know, but what I know today due to good sponsorship and, you know, reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the problem is what happens before I put the drink in, you know, how I can't handle sobriety, how living sober is just so uncomfortable that I'm going to turn back to the only thing that takes care of it, which is alcohol, you know, unless I find a spiritual awakening, you know, so uh, page 24 of the big book. The fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. You know, so, you know, I grew up in a family of alcoholics. Like I said, my last name's Cassidy and, you know, I'm Irish on my mother's side. I'm Irish on my father's side, which means, you know, in my family, you know, if you're not alcoholic, you marry one because that's what you consider normal. You know, growing up in alcoholism and living in alcoholism, it's like, what do you do when you grow up? Well, you go and seek out alcoholism. And, you know, sometimes you do it without even knowing that, you, you know, that you're looking for it. So thank God for other 12 step fellowships, you know, that uh, the people can turn to if their problem is not if their spiritual malady is not alcohol. You know, so uh, but I grew up in an alcoholic family, like I said, and as a little kid, I did not want to be alcoholic. You know, I thought I had a choice in the matter. You know, I thought that, you know being alcoholic was something that, you know, they chose. And that was, you know, a, a preconceived notion that I had, you know, about alcoholism that, you know, my dad chose to be alcoholic and my grandma chose to be alcoholic and my other grandfather chose to be alcoholic. Like it was something at career day, like, you know, maybe they lined up, you know, for career day and the line at the alcohol table was nice and short. So that's the one that they, you know, went to so that they can, you know, get it over and done with, you know, so I thought I had a choice in the matter. So as a young kid, I chose not to be alcoholic. And I know today that if I have the disease of alcoholism, if I suffer from both parts, the physical allergy, as well as the mental obsession, that, you know, when it comes to having a disease, I love the fact that I have one that is treatable, you know, so it's, it's a pain in the butt at times, but thank God it's treatable. So I don't have to die from it. You know, I, I, 
you know, I, I went to, uh, I just went to a wake recently of somebody who died of Parkinson's, you know, so it's like, it's, it's a, it's a fatal illness. You know, I went to somebody, you know, a wake of somebody who died from uh, ALS, you know, it's a fatal illness. So there are other illnesses that you can have, you know, that there is no treatment for. And so when you get that diagnosis, you know, that it's a death sentence, you know, so thank God, you know, we get to self-diagnose ourselves as alcoholic. And then if we so choose, the only choice I have in the matter is, am I going to, am I going to follow a spiritual course of action that's going to get me a guaranteed spiritual awakening, which it tells me a we agnostics is the only thing that's going to take care of my illness. You know, when it comes to, you know, that, that delusion that I had choice would carry over into my adult years, especially when it came to my drinking. You know, I love how it says we're without defense against that first drink, because if I could choose not to drink, you know, I would probably, if I was intelligent as I thought I was, I would probably not, you know, continue to do something that I continuously see to be harmful, but it just doesn't work that way as an alcoholic. I, I suffer from this delusion that this time it's going to be different, that I'll be able to control my drinking, you know, and, you know, it not get bad and there won't be any bad side effects. You know, the, uh, <clears throat> you know, my drinking, you know, the, fir the first drunk I remember, you know, was you know, it just, it just kind of happened. It, you know, it, it, the physical allergy snuck up on me because I didn't know about its existence, but, you know, I put one drink in my body and that drink demanded another drink. So I took a second drink and that, you know, and that led on to as many as, you know, as I possibly could. And it's, you know, I, I know today that the physical allergy once triggered, you know, has full control over me because at that party, I, I dropped the, gl the glass I was drinking out of, you know, because again, I didn't want to be alcoholic and alcoholics drink out of the bottle or the can, you know, if you pour it in a glass, that makes, you know, a little bit, you know, you know, top shelf and, you know, alcoholics are, you know, bottom shelf people. So clearly I'm not alcoholic if I'm drinking out of a glass, but anywho, I dropped that glass on the floor, it shatters and everybody at the party looks at me, you know, and I remember being embarrassed. But then I remember not caring because there was more alcohol in the fridge. The fact that I had just made a spectacle of myself and the fact that I was so intoxicated, I couldn't even hold on to a glass just kind of, you know, did not affect me at all because my body was just demanding more alcohol. And that's exactly what I was going to do that night. I was going to drink, you know, until I got my first blackout. You know, I, I found out real early projectile vomiting was an art form and I had mastered it, you know, at an early age, you know, passing, you know, passing out was, you know, was, it was, it was, it was a short nap, you know, we don't call it passing out, you know, it's just, you know, you know, a minuscule lapse of consciousness, you know, it's just completely normal, you know, it's like, so all that stuff, you know, it was just all the consequences that, you know, normal people would be like, oh my God, I'm never going to do that again. For me, it's just, it was like, okay, it is what it is. But what I had found was that answer that took care of that internal condition, that spirit, you know, that spiritual malady, you know, it's like, because once I started drinking, all those feelings of not fitting in, not being good enough. If they found out about me, they wouldn't want to be with me. You know, they, they would shun me if they knew the real me, you know, the chameleon side of me where I, you know, it, you know, if we, if you were talking about one thing, I was totally into that. But, you know, if I went to another group and they were talking about something else, all of a sudden I was an expert on that subject. So I always had to like blend in, but when you put some alcohol in me and all of a sudden it's just like, I, I can be me because I'm comfortable being that me, you know? So you know, and, and I felt, I woke up the next morning with, you know, what was my first hangover and that was completely fine too, because, you know, for me, that was like, all right, if this is the price of admission for being okay, then I'm willing to pay that paycheck, you know, but the, you know, unfortunately, you know, it says in the big book that alcoholism is a progressive illness. So the paycheck that I continued to pay only got worse. You know, it, it, it I don't know what it cost anybody, you guys, but for me, it cost me a lot of personal relationships. You know, it caused me, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, 
you know, broken family relations, you know, and it's like nothing good ever came, not nothing good, like ever came out of my drinking. Like anytime I came out of, you know, a blackout or I woke up the following morning after blackout that, you know, it amazes me how when the sentence from somebody started with a scowl and the following sentence, do you know what you did last night? My first thought was never good. It was never like, did I give too much money to charity again? You know, did I help too many little old ladies across the street? You know, it was just, it was always going to be bad. And I don't, I did not want anybody to know that I didn't know because I did have a mother who was in Al-Anon. My mother went into Al-Anon just before my ninth birthday. So I had, I had, I knew enough about alcoholism to know what a blackout was and to know what I was, and to know I was experiencing them. So I didn't want anybody else to know that I was experiencing blackouts. So I would do my best, you know, to try and have people fill in the gaps for me. You know, it's like, yeah, I, you know, it's like, well, what do you think about what I did last night? Tell me, you know, tell me what you think, you know, it's, it's like, I always try to get you know, a little, little bit of information so I could like, you know, and for me, I wanted the information for one thing and one thing only, you know, I wanted to be able to set up the apology because I knew anytime the sentence started with, you know, what you did last night, I owed an apology for something. And, you know, when we talk about amends later, we'll see, you know, I wholeheartedly abuse the words, I'm sorry. You know, the, uh, the words, I'm sorry, you know, just you, they meant nothing because I never backed it up with any type of, you know, action or change, or, you know, or, you know, you know, any, any real remorse, you know, but uh, my drinking only got worse. You know, the, uh, you know, I had a couple of run-ins with the law, you know, but, uh, you know, you know, I have family in law enforcement. So, you know, they, you know, kind of get like a little courtesy of like not, get, you know, not getting what, what I should deserve. You know, the uh, it's actually kind of funny. I, I went to uh, I went to a wake last week for uh, a guy I went to high school with. And uh, it's you know, the conversation started off with it's like, dude, I can't even remember the last time we spoke. You know, he, I was like, you know what? I was like, when was the last time I saw you? I was like, the only thing I kept thinking of, I'm like, was it the time we almost got arrested? And he goes, yeah, I think that was it. And he goes, I'm pretty sure that was it. You know, and my son, I forgot my son was standing next to me and that he's 10 years old. So he's like comprehending what I'm saying. He goes, dad, you almost got arrested. And I was like, that's a long story for when you get older, you know? So, uh, you know, so, you know, but it was, it was the one, one of the times I almost got arrested. And, you know, that time was a little bit worse than, you know, the first time, because the first time I almost got arrested, the cop just gave me one option. He pulled me over for DWI and he said, look, he says, you know, he says, you can use that payphone, and it was literally within, you know, a stone's throw from where I was in the car. He goes, you can use that payphone to call somebody to pick you up, or you can call a cab. He said, but if I see you on the road, he says, and I have to pull you over again, he says, you will be getting arrested. You know, so I said, okay, officer, thank you very much. And, you know, he left to go do, you know, uh, you know, probably, you know, probably more important things than, you know, stop a knucklehead on the road from, you know, doing something he wasn't supposed to do, you know, and, uh, I looked at that payphone, and you know the first thought that occurred to me was number one, I had no money on me to make a phone call, and number two, even if I had the money to make a phone call, I couldn't think of a single soul who would have come and helped me, you know. So that was the condition of my life, and like I said, the second time I almost got arrested, you know, I was still living with my parents at the time because I I did get sober at nineteen. Uh, if I didn't say so, my sobriety date is May the fifth of nineteen ninety six. Um, you know, so I do what every Irish kid does on Cinco de Mayo, you know, you get sober, you know, so I've been looking for 25 years for the Mexican guy who got sober on St. Patty's Day. And when I find that guy, you know, him and I are going to, you know, start 12, you know, we're going to start a, a big book study, you know, so, you know, it should be a lot of fun. I'm always on the lookout for that guy. But the second time I almost got arrested, 
you know, what came of it was the cop, you know, kind of, he, he took me for possession of an illegal narcotic and he took my brother who was publicly intoxicated, you know, and again, because we got family and law enforcement, he, instead of arresting us, he said that, you know, he, he took us home actually is what he did, you know? So, uh, you know, he took us home and, you know, he had us go wake up my mother and the, uh, you know, I guess the, the cat's about to get let out of the bag. The family and law enforcement was my father, you know? So, uh, you know, so I have to go, I had to go up into my mother's bedroom where she was sleeping. Oh, by the way, I should throw out there just for full disclosure. This was Thanksgiving night. So, you know, happy Thanksgiving, you know, uh, mom, there's a cop downstairs who wants to talk to you. So the, the thing about it now, you know, that I can see through sober eyes is I had just told a woman, you know, whose husband was at work, that there's a cop downstairs who wanted to talk to her. So her first thought is not, what did my knucklehead son do? It's, oh my God, my husband is dead. You know, so she comes down and she came downstairs and, you know, the cop was like, uh, you know, I, I, I believe she fell down onto the step, you know, you know, and, uh, you know, and the cop was like, oh, you know, well, you know, you know, so he told her why, you know, he brought us home and my mother, you know, at that point, she pretty much was just like, whatever, because her husband wasn't dead, you know, so the, uh, you know, we, we share that story today, you know, because I'm sober and because she's continued her membership in Al-Anon, you know, we can share that story today. Just like, it's like, look, look how bad it got, you know, and, um, you know, so full transparency, if you guys look, you know, my, my mom's actually on this listening, you know, so, uh, you know, so, it, you know, it's kind of keeping me honest of everything. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's, uh, and it only got worse from there, you know, so, you know, the drinking just got worse, the behavior got worse. And, you know, so it, you know, it came, it came to the, you know, for me, it came to the time where, on separate occasions, both my parents were, you know, telling me that they would throw me out of the house. You know, the, uh, my, you know, my mother told me one day, you know, if I was not a son, she'd throw me out of her house. And again, if I could stop due to consequences, if I could bring into, you know, into my mind, the effect of, oh my God, look, look at the pain I'm causing other people. I should stop this. If I had that power of choice, you know, the conversation with, if you were not my son, I would throw you out, would straighten out you know, somebody who has the ability to make a choice whether they're going to drink or not. But as an active alcoholic, what I heard is, well, I'm still her son, so I'm not going to get thrown out. You know, so that was about six months before I got sober, six, seven months before, you know, before I put down the drink. So I'll fast forward to that last drink because, you know, like it's, you know, the uh, it says in the book, like, you know, what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now. So, you know, drinking is only one third of my story. So I'm not going to bore you guys for the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes talking about that, because I do want to spend a lot more time talking about, you know, what God has done for me, you know, through the 12 steps. You know, so my last drunk, I was standing in my driveway getting ready to go to a party. And it was and it was not a party that I was invited to because they wanted me to be there. You know, it was a party that I was invited to because of who my brother was. So it was my brother's friends. It was my brother's roommates. You know, so I was being invited because of, you know, my association, to, you know, my blood association to another human being. So when I show up to the party, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm on my way to the party and I made a decision because there it is. There's that power of choice that I think I have, whether I'm going to drink or not. I made a choice that I was not going to drink. You know, so and that night I wasn't going to drink and it's not because I didn't want to drink. It's because at this point I was sick and tired of people telling me that I was alcoholic. You know, so if I could prove to you that I'm not alcoholic, then you'll stop calling it to me and then I can drink the way I want to drink. So how screwed up is that? You know, so the uh, and, and again, I think it's completely normal. So I'm on my way to the party. And this thought pops into my head. It came out of right field. It's not like I con. It's not like I conjured it. It's not like I thought about it. It's not like 
you know, I, I made it happen. It just popped in my head. The big book calls it that strange mental blank spot. You know, this thought pops into my head that if I buy a six pack, I can drink one beer an hour and that will be social drinking. So if I can social drink, then they'll stop calling me alcoholic because alcoholics can't social drink. So I went ahead with that game plan. I bought that six pack. I proceeded to tear the labels off of the bottles, you know, because again, you know, I, by this time they thought, you know, if you drink out of a bottle, it's not as bad as drinking out of a can, you know? So again, I had these things, you know, this level of how bad drinking is. So I had to stay, you know, I always had to stay one level above, you know, as, you know, as bad as I thought it was. So I, I tear the labels off the bottles and I make this, you know, this announcement for everybody to hear as if every, as if anybody who pays attention to me, you know, that, the bottles without labels were mine. Don't touch them because that was going to be my barometer to control my drinking. You know, at the end of the night, if, you know, if I had drunk six unlabeled bottles, then everything would be okay. So it was about 20, 25 minutes later, you know, I'm nursing my first drink and I'm not enjoying it at all, you know, because I don't know about anybody else, but it says in the book that we have, we, we have the inability to control and enjoy our drinking. So those two words never go together when it came to my drinking. So there I was trying to control my drinking and it was not enjoyable at all. So I see somebody walk past me with one of my bottles. How do I know it was my bottle? Because the label was torn off. So my, you know, I thought, again, here's the power of choice that I chose to drink again. But what I know today is the physical allergy had already been triggered. So the one drink was going to lead to more. You know, I just didn't know it. So, <clears throat> you know, so the I was like, I'm, I'm going to drink then. If they're not going to respect me, then I'm going to drink the way I want to drink. And again, that, the you know, if I had the ability to choose, why would I want to do something that has nothing but bad consequences? But I lack that ability to choose whether I'm going to take that first drink. And once I take that first drink, I can't control it. I heard somebody at a meeting say one time, alcoholism is, you know, best summed up with, I got a mind that won't let me take the first drink. And I got a body that won't let me stop at that first drink, you know? So, and that about sums up, you know, my condition, you know, cause when I woke up the next morning, you know, which was May the 5th, 1996, you know, which is my sobriety date. I woke up that morning and I was like, what happened to, I wasn't going to drink. You know, I was, I wasn't so much obsessed with, I drank more than I planned on because that had happened before. What my mind was stuck on is why can't I choose to drink or not? You know, and you know, the, uh, I, I hear, I hear spiritual awakening thrown a lot or, you know, a spiritual experience. Thrown, you know, it's like, it was a spiritual experience. It's like, no, it's not. It's, it's what, you know, the old timers when I came in used to call a moment of clarity. You know, it's when I can actually see things as they actually are, you know, and I can see the truth, you know, and the truth that I saw is that, you know, again, I always had, I always had to be not as bad as somebody else. So I always compared myself to my dad and my dad had 20 plus years on me. So my dad had been drinking 20 plus more years than me. So I always had to compare myself to him. I don't drink as bad as dad and dad's an alcoholic. So if I don't drink as bad as dad, then I'm not an alcoholic. But the thought popped into my head of why I couldn't control it is because, and it, like I said, the thought came from nowhere and I would have sworn there was somebody standing behind me because that, that was how crystal clear the voice was. It was alcoholism is a progressive illness and you're not as bad as dad for now. If you continue, you are going to get as bad as him. And if you outlive him, probably worse. And like I said, I was like, where did that, they're, they're, they're going to hair in the back of my neck, you know, raising up still. And this is like I said, you know, quarter century later. And I knew at that moment that I was in trouble, you know, but 
like a good alcoholic, you know, it's like, I still thought I could, you know, take care of this myself. So it still took me about two weeks to show up into the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. At, at that time, I had been going to open meetings of AA because, you know, God, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Like I said, my mother was in Al-Anon, so I thought my problem was my dad. So I had been going to Al-Anon meetings and they tell you to go to open AA meetings. And because God has a sense of humor, he had put somebody in my path who was actually a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, and he had five, he, had, he was coming up on five years of sobriety at that time. So not only was somebody in my life who doesn't drink, who says they're alcoholic, but it's somebody who has a length of time. So for me, that was like, oh my God, the AA must work. Because the only other experience I had with AA was an uncle, you know, it's, it was a family acquaintance that we called uncle, but he never stayed sober. He was in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. Well, what I know today is that he never followed through with the 12 steps, you know, and that's why he was in and out, in and out. You know, so this guy was talking about you know, being in recovery and staying sober for a period of time. And I was like, okay, so AA works. So I sought him out, you know, when I came into the fellowship of alcoholics and arms, because I knew, I knew a few things about a few things. I had listened good enough to know that I would, I should get a home group. I should get a sponsor, you know, and I should get a commitment because those were the things I heard a lot about, you know, in the fellowship. So I joined the first group that I went to, you know, it was filled with young people. So, you know, there's people around my age. So I felt comfortable around them. So let me join that home group. You know, and I asked this guy to be my sponsor because I, you know, I knew him, you know, and I knew, you know, I, you know, and I, I knew his sobriety. So I just asked him because he was, you know, it was all I knew to do, you know, and then, you know, get a commitment. I, I remember I went to my first business meeting and they gave out commitments like it was a popularity contest in high school. Let's give it to Joe. Let's give it to Fred. Let's give it to Bob. Let's give it to Dan, you know, and all of the commitments are gone. And like a good alcoholic, you know, rather than speak up you know, I cop a resentment instead, you know, so I have this sponsor. So I was like, Oh, let me share with him. So he goes, you know, so I was like, they didn't give me a commitment. He goes, did you let them know you wanted one? And I was like, well, there's a different way of looking at it, you know, speaking, you know, speaking up, you know, and making people aware rather than them expecting to read my mind What a novel idea, you know? So it was like, so the, 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 the change in behaviors that could come as a result of action, you know, were kind of taught to me a little bit early, you know, so I, I actually fought for my first commitment and I got me to cake commitment, you know, so, you know, I, I was proud of myself. It's like, I got the trifecta that I hear in meetings, but I wasn't getting well, you know, I, I wasn't getting well until I, you know, until I found myself in North Carolina, because in North Carolina, they, they were speaking a different language, you know, than I was hearing at my young people's home group, because in my young people's home group, what I was hearing a lot of was go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings. So I was definitely going to meetings. So I was definitely plugged into the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what happened to me as a result of the result of being plugged into the fellowship is I got a lot of friends. I got a social, I got a busy social calendar. I got things to do all of a sudden. You know, I even got a girl out of it for a bit, you know, so it's like, you know, so it's like, you know, my life was skyrocketing in the right direction. But I this this the, the spiritual malady, you know, still wasn't, you know, getting treated. I, I wasn't working the 12 steps. And, you know, I, I had had enough exposure to 12 step programs to know that if you come to a 12 step fellowship, you should be working at 12 steps of recovery. So I wanted to work the 12 steps. And I even I even asked that sponsor one time. I was like, I was like, when can we do a fourth step? And, you know, I don't know about anybody else who's on this call, you know, what your home groups are like or what your AA is like in your area. But in my area, you know, you say something out loud and all of a sudden you get, you know, you get the peanut gallery chiming in, you know, so the peanut gallery that was, you know, that heard our conversation chimes in with, you're not sober enough to do a fourth step. 
You know, so those were the, those were some of the people that I was around. You know, the, uh, they, they found acceptable behavior in the fellowship, such as a 40-year-old guy dating a 16-year-old girl. You know, so, I mean, it, it was not exactly, you know, you know, wellness, you know, being promoted. And so when I came to North Carolina, you know, all of a sudden I, I was met with people talking about, you know, using a strange language such as spiritual experience, God, you know, getting well, you know, and, and a strange word, recovered. You know, because what I was being taught, you know, when I, when I was first sober is that I was always going to stay sick. I was always going to, you know, be, I was always going to suffer. I was never going to get well. And the people, you know, who were around me, who were in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, that's completely acceptable and fine because that that's alcoholism. You know, when I moved down to North Carolina and, you know, I got hooked up with a sponsor who was like, look, my last relapse, you know, was because I was totally immersed in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, but not the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we're going to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he showed me the big book and his big book looked like crap because he actually used it. My big book looked pristine because I never really, I, I opened it once because I was told read the first 164 pages. So I cracked the books long enough to do that and then put it on the shelf. Like it was like, like I actually accomplished something. So when he showed me that title page, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism, that's when I was like, whoa, where, where's this recovery word coming from? You know, I, I'd never heard that before. So it took me to the, you know, forward to the first edition. We have Alcoholics Anonymous and more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. So that's what he was telling me that I could recover from. I could recover from the two parts of my illness that I was suffering from. I could over, you know, if I don't drink, I don't have to worry about the physical allergy, but staying away from that. How can I stay away from that first drink that my mind is demanding that I take? Well, I can't solve that problem. It has to come through a spiritual experience, you know, but if I have a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, then that part of my illness, that mental obsession gets taken care of. And without the mental obsession, I won't take that first drink. And then the coolest part about it was he showed me the very next sentence, which said to show other alcoholics, which I believe to be me as the reader of the book, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered, which means they're going to show me a path that I can take, is the main purpose of this book. So all of a sudden, I fell in love with the book, and I'm only a title page and two sentences deep. And that, the love of that book has continued for 25 years. You know, I still love that book today. When somebody asks me to sponsor them, it's, the, it's, it's my go-to guide on what, would, what are we going to do? You know, so in, in that book, it changed my life. And that's the thing that I try and bring to other people. So we started working those 12 steps through the book. And the, my experience is that you cannot believe that the step is going to work for you. But as long as you take it, you, it's going to have a profound effect on you. You know, I remember being, like I said, I don't know about anybody else, but when I showed up, I was intelligent. So when I looked at that shade, you know, I saw God twice. So it's like, okay, that's God. Then I saw a whole bunch of capital H's and I'm like, okay, you're trying to trick me, but that's God too. You know, and then I saw a power with a capital P. I'm like, okay, that means God too. You know, so when I took a look at that shade, you know, God was being mentioned by name or by, you know, by, by, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, another name nine times in 12 steps, you know, that's, that's a hell of a, uh, you know, uh, you know, percentage, you know, so I had a real problem with God when I showed up and when I gave, came here because my misconception of God is that there was a God because I, I was raised, you know, in a Catholic household. I was sent to Catholic school for 12 years, you know, but obviously I didn't get a lot of religious, you know, belief out of it. What I got was the ability to tie a necktie, you know, tw you know within two times perfectly, you know, so I get, you know, I got, I had that going for me, 
But all of the stuff that they tried to teach me in school about a loving, caring God, you know, just went, went right over my head. Because my experience, you know, as like I said, as a young child growing up with an active alcoholic, you know, he was physically abusive, he was verbally abusive. You know, I, I grew up in a neighborhood where I was sexually abused by a next door neighbor. So I had all these childhood traumas going on in life. And the, the, the way that I mentally reacted to them is that if there's a God, he doesn't care about me. You know, so that was the misconception I had. And when I see God all over those steps, I'm like, there's no way that, that God's going to help me because the God of my understanding tells me, you know, that he doesn't care about me. You know, so, but when we got to that second step, which again, because the first step tells me what my problem is, I'm powerless over alcohol, meaning, you know, I, you know, I'm powerless over alcohol before I take that first drink, I'm powerless over alcohol when I take that first drink, and I'm powerless over alcohol after I take that first drink. And my life is unmanageable, which, you know, the condition of my life when I showed it up, showed up in AA was the best I could do with me being in charge. You know, I was a college dropout. I was about to get fired from a retail job. I had a car that was, you know, three different colors. It was full, you know, it was full of rust. You know, the, uh, the seat was chained into place because, you know, because it was broken. And, you know, people call, you know, it was a piece of crap is what it was. But for me, it was my transportation, you know. So that, that was the condition of my life when I showed up. And I had family members that wanted nothing to do with me. I had no social life going for me. And I had to have friends that were felons because, again, I always had to hang out with somebody that I wasn't as bad as. So I had to hang out with people who had rap sheets so I could go, at least I'm not, I'm not as bad as him. So that was the unmanageability of my life when I showed up here. And all of that was being fueled, you know, by this internal condition, you know, that this, this restless, irritable and discontent that the doctor talks about in the doctor's opinion, that human condition that as an alcoholic, I treat with alcohol. So if you take the alcohol out of the equation, I'm going to need another solution. So when presented with that second step, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could, you know, restore me to sanity, you know. It, it, tell, it tells me in the book that lack of power is my dilemma. So if I can't supply that power, I've got to find it from somewhere else. And the only answer that it tells me in the third step is that it's going to come from God. You know, you know, it tells me how it works. There's one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. You know, not 90 days from now, not a year from now, but now, you know, so find God now and then everything's going to be fine. You know, so again, but I had that problem with God, but in that second step, you know, it tells me in the book, you know, in the, in the chapter, we agnostics, it tells me that I have to believe one of two things. One, that there is a power greater than myself or two, be open minded to that power. So am I willing to believe or, you know, am I even willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? And it tells me that then I have a beginning. So my experience with, you know, being open minded was I was my, the homework I was given by that sponsor was read we agnostics and read the second step out of the 12 and 12 for one week because he knew he was dealing with somebody who was closed minded. You know, so I was doing what I was told because, again, I don't believe that it's going to work for me, but I'm going to do it anyway because, you know, it was working the steps the first time is, you know, it was the character defect of wanting to be like actually worked for me. You know, I'll do what you want because I want you to like me, you know, because I don't think the step's going to work for me. So I start reading this stuff that I'm assigned to. And there's a, there's a thing on page 54 where it talks about, you know, that, you know, we are, we're all worshipers of some kind. You know, it talks about the sunset, it talks about flowers, it talks about other stuff, you know, it talks about people, it talks about money. So I could see that I was always looking at something outside of me to take care of me. If I had more money, I'd be okay. If I had the girl, she, I'd be okay. You know, I see, you know, I see a sunlight and then sunrise and say, wow, that's beautiful. You know, so I'd always been a worshiper of something. So why can't I take that belief that I've had in other stuff and instead turn it to God? And that little bit of open-mindedness you know, I remember I was, I was sitting on the, uh, the campus of my college 
you know, I was sitting by the fountain, you know, and the, uh, you know, all of a sudden I read that line, you know, I read that little paragraph and all of a sudden I swear to God, the sun became a little bit brighter. It became a little bit warmer. You know, the, the, the birds start, it sounded a little bit sweeter than they did, you know, before as like nothing had changed. The only thing that had changed, you know, is that I was now open-minded to God and you know, like a good alcoholic, I wanted to experience that again. So I reread the paragraph again, you know, and it did the same effect didn't happen, you know, but, you know, but I ran to the payphone and there I'm dating myself again. It was 1996. So for any, anybody who's, uh, you know, young on the call, you know, we used to have these things called payphones. They're not around anymore. They went the way of the pager, you know, you probably don't know what that is either, you know? So, but I ran to the payphone and I called my sponsor and I told him what had happened to me. And he goes, Matt, he goes, it sounds like you've had a second step experience and maybe even some of the third. He goes, so let's get together, you know, so we worked that third step, you know, you know, the following day, because now I didn't have to wait a week anymore. You know, so we went on through the rest of the steps. And again, it's not what I thought about them. It's not what I believed about them is was I going to take them? Because when you get to that fourth step, it talks about it, you know, that searching and fearless moral inventory. If you if you read the book and again, because, you know, it's going to show me precisely how we have recovered. It talks about putting pen to paper, you know, so it talks about writing. And when I first saw that, I was like, I was like writing. I was like, the police call that a written confession. They eat that up. I'm like, you actually want me to make, you actually want me to make this stuff real by writing it down. And I was told, it's like, well, you said before you wanted what I had and you're willing to go to any length to get it. So are you still willing? Are you going to do what it says in the book? Are you going to do exactly what it says precisely? You know, so I relented and, you know, so I wrote that inventory and then came that dreaded fifth step, you know, to share it with another human being, because again, the fear of not being liked, the fear of being unloved, unaccepted, you know, the fear of being found out, you know, the, the fear, you know, all these fears, you know, wrap around another human being finding out the real me, you know? So when asked, where do you want to do this inventory? The only response I could come up with was my apartment. And it wasn't because I loved the setting of my apartment. You know, it was, you know, I was actually living in an old hotel that was bought by a private company that was, you know, renovated for student housing. So I was essentially living in a hotel room. So it's not like my hotel room was spectacular, but it's because my thought process was after I tell him the stuff that I've written down on paper, the cool thing about it is he can't throw me out of my own apartment. So that's why I wanted it to be there. I wanted, a, I wanted a little bit of security that the worst he could do is get up and leave. You know, so we did that fifth step. And instead, what I was met with was understanding and love. We moved on through, you know, we moved on through seven, you know, through, uh, you know, six and seven, where it boils down to all the defects that I just found out I have, I can't fix, you know, that I, I learned really early on that if there was a self-help book that worked, you know, then the self-help section would consist of one book and it would probably be a number one bestseller. But I lack the power to change me. I lack the power to fix me. If selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problem, I can't make a decision to be selfless and it stick. You know, it's going to have to be followed by a course of action. And that course of action is to ask God to get involved. You know, so we did six, you know, so we did six and seven, which sets you up for eight, nine, you know, so I got that other list, you know, the list of people that I'm about to approach and make amends to, you know, and again, that goes contradictory because like I said earlier, you know, I had abused the words, I'm sorry. So I thought what I had was a list of people that I'm going to go and say, I'm sorry to. That's not what the eighth step says. It says that we're going to make amends. And my sponsor pointed out to me that amends, you know, takes on two forms. One, it's to mend, like you can mend a piece of cloth, which means to fix, you know, so I could fix these relationships that I had broken by my reactions, my interactions with them, you know, 
and amend also means to change. Like we amend the constitution, you know, we actually have to, you know, put it in right, you know, we actually have to change it in order for it to be changed. So I'm going to change my behavior and I'm going to make restitution for the harms I've done. So it's not about saying, I'm sorry. It's about repairing the damage that I've done. And, you know, and I, not that sponsor had me through the steps, but I got some, I got today, I got a really tough sponsor because he, you know, he takes things literal. You know, the, uh, the, I'm talking about the first time I worked the steps, but it was certainly not the last time I've worked the steps. I was, I was double digit year sobriety when all of a sudden, you know, in meditation one day, what pops into my head is that, you know, a long time ago, you know, I had either stolen comic books from my cousin because he collected comics and so did I. So I either stole them or I had legitimately borrowed them and just never returned them. So either way, I'm in possession of his property and I've never paid for it. So I owe him an amends. So I guesstimated that it was probably about $500 worth of stuff that I had because I had no idea which ones were his and which ones were mine because they were so intermingled with my collection. So I go to him to make amends and I explain to him that, you know, it's like, look, the reason why I'm here is to make restitution because I, I either borrowed your comics and never gave them back or I outright stole them from you without your permission. Either way, you know, I have your property. And I would like to pay you for them is, do you think $500 is enough? You know, and he was, he starts laughing, you know, and I'm, you know, and his response was, he goes, when I was going through my nasty divorce, he goes, my soon to be ex-wife took all of my personal belongings and threw them in a dumpster. He says, to get back at me. He says, so he goes, I've been walking around for almost a decade thinking all of my comics are gone. And my son had already been born at this time. So he goes, he goes, why don't you do me a favor? He says, he says, give your comic book collection to your son. He goes, when he becomes old enough to take care of them properly, he says, and then he'll have my comics. So, you know, so my collection will live on, you know, through your son. And I was like, okay, cool. Good deal. But again, I have tough sponsorship in my life. So what I thought is I'm, you know, I'm still plus $500 in my account. So, but I got a tough sponsor. So he says to me, he goes, he goes, okay, he goes, let me get this straight. Your cousin doesn't want his money back. And I'm like, right. He goes, so how does his money automatically become your money? Cause he doesn't want it. And I'm like, Oh, I guess that's a different way to look at it. So how can I go about making this, you know, direct amends? He goes, why don't you take the $500 you plan on giving him and give it instead to a charity that you think he would, you know, be for. And it was really easy to come up with. His mother had suffered two bouts of breast cancer and lived through it. So you know, so I took that money and I gave it to, you know, Breast Cancer Foundations, you know. So, like I said, that's the sponsorship I roll with today. So it's like, you know, it says it's, you know, the spiritual, you know, life is not a theory. We have to live it. And so I'm held to higher standards, you know, than, uh, you know, than your average bear, you know, and I'm glad and I'm glad for it because it kind of keeps me on the straight and narrow. So, I, you know, I've, ma I've made those amends because it says in the eighth step that, you know, we made made a list of all persons we have harmed and became willing to make direct amends to them all. So I have to do all of them, not half of them, not part of them. I'm going to do all of them. If you've made the list, I owe you an amends. And the ninth step is go and take care of them. So, you know, so I go and take care of them. And if you look at the ninth step, it says where it doesn't say whenever possible. It says wherever possible. So it's not I'm going to wait for God to put this person in my path and, you know, take care of it, you know, three years from now. You know, it's go and take care of it as soon as possible. Because if you look at Dr. Bob's story, Dr. Bob did not get sober until he made his amends. You know, Dr. Bob met Bill, stopped drinking for a couple of weeks, you know, because he was hanging out with Bill. So you might say that Dr. Bob was the first guy who tried just don't drink and go to meetings. And it didn't work because he got drunk again. 
you know, but when he came in, you know, when he followed through and made his amends, that's when his sobriety began, you know, and that's what we celebrate on June 10th, you know, on Founders Day, you know, the day Dr. Bob said he took his last drink. So, you know, I had to make those amends. And then, like I said, 10 and 11, 10 and 11, you know, is that's, that's like the bread and butter of what I live now, you know, because the 10 and 11 talk about what I should be doing during the day, what I should be doing in the morning, what I should be doing at night to stay plugged into that power. Because I know today that, you know, I charge my cell phone every day because I want it to work properly. You know, why would I not charge my spiritual condition every day so that it can work properly? You know, and that's what I need to do. So, you know, 10 tells me what, you know, it's funny how, you know, 10 sets me up for, you know, being imperfect because I don't know about anybody else, but, you know, my mind tells me that I needed to be perfect. Otherwise I'm the worst piece of crap on the face of the earth, you know? So when I fall short of being imperfect, the first thing my mind tells me, is, see, you still screw up. Okay. So my mind, I know today, my mind is not a fan of me doing well. You know, my mind always wants to tear me down. And that's the one that, and that's the one thing I can't escape from because it's stuck on my shoulders, you know? So I'm living with a thing. that's not a fan of me doing well. It's not a fan of me being happy, you know? So I can't, and again, there's no self-help book that I'm aware of that's going to change that because I lack the ability to change that. But if I get God involved in the mix, then I have a fighting chance of being happy, joyous, and free. You know, so that 10 step tells me to continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And, you know, do you think it's ironic that I'm on the watch for everything that I found out in the fourth column of my inventory is bad? You know, why is this stuff still going to pop up? Because I'm not, because I'm human, because I'm not perfect today. You know, it's, it's okay to, you know, here's the secret, you know, that your mind doesn't want you to know. It's okay to not be perfect. You know, it's okay to be human. It's okay to make mistakes. You know, so that I use that 10 step, you know, throughout the day, you know, and at 11 step, it tells me what to do in the morning. It tells me what to do throughout the day. It tells me what to do at night, you know, so I can do spirit. I can do spiritual living to the best of my ability. You know, my favorite part of the 11 step is one that I often fall short on. You know, it tells me we pause when agitated or doubtful. I mean, what a novel idea. Don't shoot off your mouth and do something that you're going to have to make amends for later, you know, because it tells, you know, it tells me that, you know, it tells me in that 10 step to make amends promptly if I've needed it. And again, I have a sponsor who's the who's, who's tough case, you know, that sponsor tells me, you know, he goes, Matt, if you haven't made amends within the past 72 hours, you're not working a 10 step, you know, so he holds me, he holds, he, he holds me to that high standard, you know, so the, the 10th and 11th keeping me plugged into that higher power. That's what I, that's what I need to be doing, you know, because if I'm not plugged into that higher power, I'm left on Matt's power. You know, my experience of being left on Matt's power, because uh, in 2019, I got a resentment against people in my home group. So I walked away from my home group, you know, so I stopped going to meetings, you know, and I got, again, I got that tough sponsor who's a, who's, who believes in literal English, you know, so when they say meetings, meetings means more than one, you have to go be going at least two meetings a week to be going to meetings, you know, so I wasn't doing that. So I can't be honest with my sponsors. So I don't know about you people, but what I do is I just stop talking to my sponsors. So I'm unplugged from the fellowship. I'm unplugged for sponsorship, you know, and I'm, you know, certainly not doing 10, 11, because if I was doing 10, 11, that first sentence where I continue to watch for resentment, I would have spotted it like, you know, from a mile away. And I would have done what the book says is, you know, do inventory on it so I can face and be rid of those things within me that have me blocked from God. So, but I wasn't doing that. So what happens to me is that's that human condition, that spiritual malady starts to fester and starts to grow, you know, so my experience, you know, is that I was, you know, I was, I was at a martial arts convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, you know, and I'm sitting in a bar and somebody comes over to me and tells me that it looks like everybody else is having fun. 
but you look like the most miserable person in here. You know, I know today that was God saving my butt, you know, through a resentment, because if that woman didn't say anything to me, I probably would have continued to sit there and been miserable. What I was actually doing is I was, I was suffering from, you know, I was suffering from the stuff it talks about on page 52, you know, the, the bedevilments, you know, so if I'm suffering from that stuff and I'm not plugged into God, which is the only thing that's going to take care of it, then I probably would have turned to the only other thing that works, which was alcohol. Because again, I lacked that ability to choose whether I was going to drink or not. I was so sick that I thought I was sitting in that bar making a decision not to drink. How, you know, if I'm without defense against that first drink, I don't, I have no idea how much longer it would have lasted, but I know today the truth of it, again, I, I still get moments of clarity, you know, even in sobriety that that would have worn down if I continued to stay there, you know, and I probably would have drank, you know, so I know today that on my own power, I'm still an arm's length away from a drink. And, you know, when I call that sponsor again, you know, fess up, it's like, Hey, here's what I've been doing for the past six months. Cause I haven't been talking to you. You know, he's like, Hey, you know, we, you can't change the past, but you can, you can work on the present and the future and the present's going to affect the future. You know? So the first thing he did is get me back into prayer and meditation. He says, let's get you plugged back into God. And the result, the transformative results of getting plugged back into God were like an overnight matter. You know, it was like one day I was, I was suffering from the spirit, you know, the spiritual malady. I was restless, irritable, discontented, and I was unhappy. And I, you know, you throw some prayer and meditation in the mix. And all of a sudden I find myself, you know, you know, being happy, joyous and free, you know, and all I was doing was following a set of directions that were being given to me by another human being. I was being held accountable for my actions, you know, and the other thing he got me involved in, he says, you know, he goes, you got to get reinvolved in that 12th step because how many times in the book does it say we tried to help somebody else? You know, it says twice in the book that if I'm, if I'm working with others, then I'll get, it's, it says in, the, in one part of the book, working with others is giving continuous sobriety. It tells me in another part of the book that working with others is going to get me immunity from drinking. You know, so twice in the book, it's talking about a lasting effect, not not just not drinking one day at a time, but not having the problem. You know, the problem's been removed is what it says in the 10th step promise so that the problems of, of alcoholism can be taken away as a, as a spiritual course of living. You know, so those things, have, like I said, it, ha it, was, it happened like, you know, there's, you hear it a lot in meetings. Oh, it's in God's time. I believe God's time is now. You know, because when I turn to God, all of a sudden that stuff happens right away. I don't have to wait for it. It's, there, there is no deadline. It's like, okay, how much longer do I have to hang in there before God takes this away from me? If I get God involved, it happens right away. You know, so all of a sudden, like I, I was, I was lit on, I was lit on fire, like like I had never been before. You know, <clears throat> and like I said, the, uh, you know, COVID was happening at the time, so you know, all of a sudden it was, you know, Zoom meetings you know, rather than in-person meetings, but I jumped in on Zoom meetings, I, you know, and I, I wanted to have fun with it. I didn't want to see the same people that I see all the time and hear the same things that I heard all the time. So I was going to meetings in Kansas. I was going to meetings in North Carolina. I was going to meetings in Texas. I was going to, you know, somehow, you know, I wound up in Mississippi, you know, um, because, uh, you know, I, I met Josh, you know, because Josh spoke at a meeting in Canada. I even spoke at a meeting in Canada, you know, so I was creating the fellowship I craved and the, the fellowship I craved was other recovered alcoholics, other people who say through spiritual living, we've overcome that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and the problem does not exist for us. They weren't, you know, and, and the thing about it was they, they were not saying it from a position of we got it, you don't. It's we would love to show you how because all they were doing was what the book said, you know, is that, you know, carrying the message to the next sick and suffering alcoholic, you know. It was pointed out to me early in sobriety that there's only two steps that have their own chapters in the book. One is we agnostic. So it's entirely devoted to the second step, which is the first solution step. And then the 12th step working with others, you know, gets its own chapter, 
you know, so that 12th step, if it wasn't so important, why would they give it its own chapter? So carrying that message to others, you know, is it's, it's what I, like I said, every other Sunday now, I carry a message to a detox. And like I said, when I first started talking, the, they call themselves alcoholic, but they don't even know what they're suffering from because a lot of them sit there. It's not their first rodeo, you know, and they start talking about, it. it's like, I can't believe I chose to drink again. Or, you know, I chose to, and I, and I try and get them to understand. It's like, dude, you know, or do that, you know, there are women in there, you know? So it's like, it's like, if you have a disease and you didn't take the medicine, the 12 steps, then you're going to suffer from the disease. It's, it's nothing that you've done to yourself, you know, but so the good news is, is that your last relapse was not your fault. But the bad news is, is if you don't do something about it, it's going to happen again. You know, and I, you know, it's like, and I can't tell you how many times that, you know, the, uh, you know, when I, when I leave there with my speaker, because there's always two of us going on a 12 step call together. It's like, we leave there and it's like, we know what alcohol looks like. It says in the book that alcohol is cunning, baffling and powerful. And my observation is that alcohol is cunning, baffling and powerful, that you get people wearing pajamas and slippers sitting there saying, I know what I need to do to stay sober. It's like my sobriety began when I turned to another human being who was like, I know how to stay sober and I'll show you the way. You know, my spot, the first sponsor who walked me through the steps, he kind of reminded me that AA was not having a membership drive. They did not knock on my front door and ask me to join the club. You know, I showed up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because everything I knew to do on my own did not work and I could not stop drinking on my own. So, the, the, you know, AA was the last stop on the block for me. So if I was either going to do these 12 steps and get well, or I was going to continue to suffer from alcoholism, you know, it says in the book, it's a progressive illness. So that sponsor told me, he says, man, he goes, if you don't do something about your alcoholism, he goes, you're going to get drunk because if you do nothing, you have a progressive illness. And then he took me to that part of, you know, work, you know, um, and how it works. It says half measures of ale, it's nothing. He says, so if you do this half-assed, he says, you're going to get drunk too. He says, so you can do nothing and get drunk. You can do half of it and get drunk, or you can do the whole thing and you can have that guaranteed spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Because look, there's the promise of the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So the first paragraph of We Agnostics say the spiritual experience is the only thing that's going to conquer my illness. And I'm guaranteed to get the thing as the result of taking all 12 steps, not some of them, you know, so making all those amends, you know, doing that daily prayer meditation, because that was the first question that sponsor asked me when I called him after six months of hiatus, he goes, what's your daily prayer and meditation life like? You know, it's like, um, well, it doesn't exist. He goes, and you wonder why spiritual plaque is built up, you know, so we had, you know, we had to chip away that plaque, you know, and then I can, you know, and then I can take that corrective course of action to kind of, you know, minimize it, you know, getting that bad again, you know, I'm by no means perfect. You know, the, uh, you know, my, my kids will tell you, you know, the, I, I lose my patience all the time. I'm, I'm not a saint, you know, I practice, I practice a spiritual way of life, you know, and I, and I do the best I can and I fall imperfect all the time. You know, I lose my patience with my kids. I yell at them. You know, I, I get into, you know, I, I, I don't get in any screaming matches with my wife. We call them rather loud altercations, you know, so we don't scream. They're just rather loud altercations, you know, so it's like, you know, so it's like, nope, we get in a screaming match. Let's call them what they are, you know, so it's like, so I, I by no means perfect, you know, like I said, when I first read that thing, you know, the, the growing up in AA, you know, is something for me that, you know, continues, you know, if, you know, the, it says in the book that it's our basic text, you know, and it was shown to me that, 
when I was in school and studied a textbook, I studied the textbook so I could pass the test. You know, if I could pass the test, it means I studied the material well. Well, it was pointed out to me that the test of Alcoholics Anonymous is, can I stay sober and be happy about it? You know, that's the daily test that I get as, you know, in AA, you know, and I pass that test every time I do it through spiritual means, you know, there, there were periods of my sobriety where I was so dry, I was a fire hazard, you know, you, you know, you want, you know, they, they say, you know, the, you want to attract people to what you have, you know, so that they want what you have. I, there were times in my sobriety where I was, I was, you know, I'd be repulsive to people. It's like, you know, I, I was trying to take the book and shove it sideways down them, you know, cause it's the mess, the stuff that they were sharing with those contradictory to a lot of stuff the book says. And I did not make a lot of friends that way. You know, I, you know, I actually owe an amends for a lot of the behavior that I did because it's not about telling people this is what you need to do or worse yet, you're doing it wrong. You know, instead of what my message is today is this is what I do. And if you want what I have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And those steps would again get me well, because it says in how it works, these are the steps we took, which is suggested as a program of recovery. You know, a lot of the misconception that people have is that suggested steps mean optional steps. You know, they're not optional. They're suggested because it's the only way to get to that spiritual awakening. You know, my <clears throat> I was uh, I had a five year you know chip in my pocket, you know, when I was 24 years old, 24 years old. My brother was, is, is 11 months older than me. So he was he was 25 and he was diagnosed with fatty deposits on his liver. That doesn't happen by accident. You know, so the doctor was trying to, you know, trying to get him to understand it's like your drinking is causing you damage to your health, you know, and so he was going to quit drinking, you know, so he made a decision to quit drinking. And, you know, it says in the, you know, it says in the book that I, you know, I have to be convinced somebody's an alcoholic. So th this whole thing about, you know, it's like, we can't call somebody else an alcoholic. I have no idea where that comes from. It's not my job to tell him he's alcoholic is what the book tells me. They have to figure that out on their own. But my brother's definitely alcoholic because he shows all the symptoms of it, you know, so he made a decision. He wasn't going to drink. And I remember his wife asking me, she goes, is there another way to get sober other than AA? Because I don't think your brother will ever go to AA. And I said, well, I says, there may be other ways, but I don't know about them because the only people I know who stay sober do it by doing AA, you know, so NAA, NAA works for them. And if I do what they do you know, ahead of me, then it works for me. You know, so I, you know, he can do whatever he wants to try, you know, and, you know, I, I just turned 45 in June. My brother will turn 46 uh, next week. Actually, yeah, yeah. Next week he'll turn 46 and he still drinks today because he lacks the ability to choose whether he's going to drink or not. And I can totally relate to him. So I don't talk about him from any high spiritual mountaintop like I'm better than him. I just know that if I don't do what I need to do, then I will suffer just like him. So I actually feel bad for him that he has to suffer from this disease because he does have a, a way, he does have a way out. He just chooses not to do it because that's the only choice we have in the matter. Are we, you know, are we going to take the 12 steps and get well, or are we going to suffer from this disease? And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just end with this because I love, I love ending with, you know, some type of humor is that, you know, if, if, you know, for those of you on the, on the video call, you know, it's like, you see me wearing a, uh, you know, I was raised in AA to show AA the, uh, you know, the respect deserves. So, you know, get a little dressed up when you're speaking. So you see me wearing a blazer and you see me wearing an orange and blue shirt, um, you know, college shirt. My son drew me a father's day card 
and he drew me a self picture. So unfortunately he drew it to the, the, the depiction of the way he sees me. So he drew the guy with gray hair, you know, it's cause my son's honest. So the, you know, so the guy's got long gray hair. Okay. But my son drew me wearing a blazer and a college shirt. The only time I ever, he's ever seen me do that is whenever I'm doing a zoom meeting. Okay. So my son sees me as, you know, somebody who speaks at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And a couple of weeks ago, he wanted me to watch TV with him. You know, he wanted me to watch, you know, a show with him that, you know, was important to him that, you know, he spent time with me because, you know, the, uh, he wants to spend time with me. You know, that was not something I wanted to do with my alcoholic dad was, you know, spend time with him, you know, but my son wants to spend time with me and I was going to be speaking at a meeting that night. So I just told him, I said, no, buddy, I said, I'm sorry. I says, uh, I says, I, I'm going to a meeting tonight. And because of the pandemic and because of being locked down for a couple of months, you know, I explained to my son what AA was and, you know, that I'm an alcoholic and I don't drink. So he knows what AA does for me. He knows that active participation in AA is important for me to stay well. You know, so he asked me, he goes, are you going to a meet? He goes, you going to an AA meeting? And I said, yeah. He goes, are you speaking again tonight? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, helping other people is a really good reason not to hang out with me. You know, so my son is learning you know, selfishness and self-centeredness because that's what I'm showing him, you know, and I can only show him that because he, he gets the best me when I'm plugged into God and I'm plugged into fellowship. So with you people and with God, I can be the better me without those two things. I'm going to be restless, irritable, discontented, and most likely turn back to a drink to feel better because it's the only other thing that ever worked, you know, and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for asking me again. I just love the title of this, this group, the Grace Group, because my daughter's middle name is Grace, because when we were picking her name, it was either going to be Faith, Grace, or Hope, you know, and we went with Grace because we wanted the same initials as my son. Thanks for having me.